there is uh, power and resilience and love that waits us when we're willing to turn towards and meet our shadows rather than try to push them away. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is Ram Dave Dale Borglum at the Healing at the Edge channel of the Be Here Now Network. And today I'm so happy to have with me and with us Deborah Eden Tall, who has just written a lovely new book that I've been looking at, Luminous Darkness. She's here with us, and we're going to talk about the book and how her life and my life have a lot of overlap and the things we've done in the past, the teaching we're doing. Uh, she was a Zen student, a Zen monk for seven years. Uh, I practice then. I never became a monk. And she is also into deep ecology, has studied with Joanna Macy, who is also an old friend of mine, and is into post-patriarchal thought, which leads into the mother and tantra, which is one of the things I'm most interested in right now. So I think uh, Eden and I will have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Eden. Grateful to be here with you. And really looking forward to see, seeing where this conversation evolves. Maybe you could give a brief, not summary, but what's the main idea behind in darkness, deep, uh, luminous darkness? I, I was really struck by the word in darkness as opposed to enlightenment. Sure. So I talk about the need for endarkenment alongside enlightenment, not instead of, but acknowledging that, especially at this moment in time, there's a seems to be an invitation, both personally and collectively, to really look at and let go of certain unconscious biases we may have been holding, and even that may have informed some of our spiritual practice and some of how we uh, seek enlightenment. And one of those unconscious biases is a collective assumption that light is superior to dark, that we are trying to get to the light by pushing away or ridding ourselves of the dark. And I point to the fact that wisdom traditions throughout the globe, throughout history, and just to remind the listener that it's been so recently that we've spent time at the night in brightly lit environments. We have a deep historical relationship to physical darkness. And spiritual traditions throughout history have celebrated darkness as an instigator for spiritual growth, as a wisdom teacher. And so in today's world, when both personally and collectively, we're all facing uh, the unknown, great uncertainty, um, and darkness is one half of our human experience. It's relevant and it enlivens us <laughs> to learn to turn towards with compassion rather than away from and continue to reject that which we deem dark. Yeah. So I was struck when I was thinking about that idea 
the practice of Tonglen, which I'm sure you're familiar with. And in that practice, we, we breathe in someone else's suffering, maybe working with part of our own suffering. We breathe it in and there's an optional visualization that you're visualizing, visualizing suffering as hot dark smoke. And you're breathing out the antidote with loving kindness as cool white light, focusing on the compassion as you're breathing in, the loving kindness as you're breathing out. But it's really a radical practice because usually we're breathing in the good stuff, the light stuff, and breathing out the dark stuff, the bad stuff. And here we're actually accepting the dark from somebody else or from our own self and letting go of the light. And the theory behind all of this, and it certainly works in practice in my experience, is that it cuts at the very root our self-clinging, that if we're really willing to open to the dark in those around us or in our own self, that that place where we're trying to improve and fix and use spiritual practice or life itself to get better, and there's the good emotions, there's the bad emotions, and there's the good stuff, and there's the bad stuff going beyond that. Yes, I love that you brought up Tonglen and agree that it's a radical practice and would add that in breathing in the dark, in being willing to engage in this practice, we're acknowledging our bodies or body minds as sacred vessels for alchemy, for healing and transformation. When we're pushing away the dark, we are uh, avoiding this basic truth. We're, in my experience, diminishing our deeper power, our deeper compassion, because it's when we turn towards and welcome and presence and be with the dark that we, in my experience, access and are reminded of this unwavering compassion, this unwavering um, capacity for spacious presence that welcomes everything. And I want to say a little more about something you pointed to. Because there can be an assumption that light, enlightenment is both an end and a goal, and because we're living in a world that seems fixated on trying to get to the light and fixated on speed and productivity and doing, we can bring this very active overly active <laughs> energy to our practice, over-efforting, striving, again, trying to get to, instead of welcoming in to the compassion that is who we are, both dark and light, all aspects of our human experience, learning to perceive it all through compassionate neutrality or welcome. Does that resonate with some of your experience? Yeah, that's uh, it. very much so. I mean, I'm really in deep harmony with you on that. And uh, in your book, you talk about fierce compassion. Uh, in, the, in the West, when we think of the deity, we think of a being of light. And in the East, they do have deities of the dark. I mean, my spiritual name, Ramdev, is actually a name of Shiva. And I've always been attracted to Kali and Durga and Mahakala and these deities that allow us to realize that the dark is sacred. Uh, and I think that the work you're doing, with without bringing Hindu or Buddhist deities across the ocean necessarily, is uh, taking the essential quality of these other deities and 
bringing it out into the open. Yes, I think that's very well said. And I feel that this medicine is so needed. I've been um, uh, surprised by how many people of many different walks of life, both devoted practitioners and those who have sort of uh, tiptoed around the path are hungry for these deities of darkness are hungry for recognition that there is uh, power and resilience and love that waits us when we're willing to turn towards and meet our shadows rather than try to push them away. I want to give a shout out based on what you've said about a new book by Zenju Earthland Manuel. I think it's probably soon to come out, but she's also written about darkness and has focused each chapter on a different uh, deity or goddess of darkness. And I know that in my life, yes, um, I wouldn't have gotten through without the presence and allyship of Kali, um, Black Tara, uh, Ekajati, uh, these goddesses and deities who remind us of the medicine within darkness. And this to me is clear seeing. It's one half of our human experience. And I find it so fascinating how much conditioning there is to instead of see clearly, label everything that makes us uncomfortable, that's unwanted, that's difficult, that's messy, to label that dark so we can put it away in a sort of isolated place. And it's when we bring it in, when we integrate it into our awareness, that healing occurs, organic healing, yeah. So my two professional hats mostly are a guide to the dying and as a meditation teacher. And particularly as a meditation teacher, it surprises me after, I mean, I've been leading groups since uh, 2009. So I've had people in some of these groups for 13 years now. And how hard it is for people to understand compassion that, uh, the, the, the spacious nature of the heart mind allows for the dark emotions to be there. That very often people say, I've had a bad meditation yesterday, or I'm having a good meditation now. And the bad one is agitation, a lot of thoughts. Uh, I had a friend who recently had a transcendental experience on a, a trip to a sacred place in Asia. And then he came home and he got COVID and he's really weak. And he was bemoaning the fact that he couldn't meditate anymore. And he was kind of comparing how wonderful it was to be an Asian, have this experience. And now he has almost no energy. Could you talk something about fierce compassion in relationship to negative emotion as well as positive emotion? Sure. Yes. Um, First, I would just say in the book, I talk about many dimensions of what darkness is. And another expression of darkness and nature and consciousness is the receptive aspect of our being. Uh, darkness as quietude, stillness, the yin, restorative aspect of nature, as opposed to the yang, active. And I find it really important to acknowledge that because in the dominant paradigm, uh, there's such an imbalance between yin and yang, 
through capitalism, individualism, marketplace mentality. There's such an emphasis people might not even be aware of on doing and producing and speed. I feel that even when people come to spiritual practice, it's important to pay attention to this because there can be an assumption that mental effort is needed for everything and that even compassion is an action, that even compassion is something we do uh, or something we have to uh, mentally, effortfully think about to access instead of recognizing that there exists already Um, a spacious, vast, compassionate presence within each and every one of us, shared presence, shared consciousness, that when we learn to tune into this state through not doing something, not being active, but emptying, non-doing, it's like a coming home. This is often how people describe it, right? To this field that already exists. One way I talk about gentle compassion and fierce compassion from this place of non-doing, of just recognizing that it's already here, is the metaphor of on one hand, on one side, just the open, receptive hand, the listening, the being with, the compassion that doesn't need to take any particular action other than welcoming life as it is you with me just the energetic welcome and on the other hand manjushri sword with cuts which cuts through delusion the more fierce aspect of compassion i know that in my life uh, both personally as my practice has asked me over the years to meet and work with shadows to meet and work with grief i didn't think i was going to recover from to as a student of environmental studies and then activist, address my feelings about climate crisis, about systemic racism, about the whole legacy of the messiness and complexity of what we've all, what we're all working with. There's, there's no way, there's not a chance, not a chance I could navigate any of that without fierce compassion. But it's really interesting, isn't it? Because many people have this fundamental confusion between being nice and being kind. And isn't a spiritual person supposed to be nice? And so there's kind of this bizarre standard created where we're supposed to be nice all the time or think practice makes life more pleasant all the time when it doesn't. Consciousness is not always pretty. Wakefulness invites us to access the gentle and the fierce. And when I say kindness, I mean a kindness that's truly generous, that would speak out on behalf of justice, that would take the risk of um, humiliation beyond caring how we look to say something true and necessary, that would really show up, even if it's uncomfortable to roll up our sleeves and do so, to be of service in a situation where we know that's the heart's imperative. So I'm a real advocate for fierce compassion. And I find that so many people feel great freedom. They feel a deep sense of relief (laughs) through just the invitation of fierce compassion because there has been kind of a long-held misunderstanding of what having a spiritual practice looks like and a tendency I talk about in the book called sunshining. Let's keep things light, keep things pleasant, keep things surface, where 
deep down below is an entire rich field of our experience. There's a section in the book called the dark undercavern of our experience, the fertile dark undercavern of our experience. There's just so much more energy <laughs> which, with which we can serve life when we have access to fierce compassion. Yeah? Completely agree. I mean, yeah. to me, compassion can be spelled either with a small C or with a capital C. And in the beginning stages of practice, there's often a me who's thinking, I've got a deepened compassion. I'm doing compassion. But as practice proceeds, and I've been meditating for five decades, and I'm still this neurotic, uh, it seems that compassion is who I am, and that it's spelled with a capital C. And that it, it's the practice is more and more about receiving and opening rather than doing and fixing. Uh, there's a, a dance called the country two-step that you probably heard of, and I kind of jokingly have this healing process I call the tantric three-step. And the first step is embodied mindfulness. The second step is compassion. Third step is tantra. And even uh, the very first step of practice, my experience as a meditation teacher is that so many people use meditation as a way to avoid the fact that they're not embodied that they're not with form, if you will, that they're, and that they're trying to use meditation to get beyond form even further. So that a, a lot of these Eastern practices were developed by and for people a long time ago that didn't wear shoes, that didn't have iPhones, that didn't have technology. And they had their own set of problems, but it's a very different set of problems, I think, in, in large. So that getting beyond this thing of I'm using mindfulness to get out of here or the phrase you used, sunshining, I believe it was or something, is, is really very prevalent. And uh, I kind of jokingly say sometimes that, that maybe if you go to the local bar or restaurant, the people there are more grounded and more centered than if you go to the local meditation hall just as a statistical probability. Maybe that's not true, but <laughs> I used meditation for a long time to try to get away from the fact that I was in my head and that I was a PhD mathematician and all those things. Uh, so we haven't talked about Tantra. And uh, to me, Tantra and this, this relationship with the dark, seeing it all as the mother, which is what Hindu Tantra is about, that everything you can think, see, experience, all energy, all form, all matter is the mother, and the father is the unmanifest absolute, and they're always intertwining and making love with each other. That that creates a very different relationship with, with the dark. And uh, it, it just seemed that your whole book is about Tantra, although you never use that word. This is true. I would say you're seeing clearly. And I love that you're bringing up this topic because uh, I feel so much tenderness in my heart about being alive in this day and age where, as a collective, we have become pretty disembodied. And there's so much energy which I, that I witness going to trying to transcend and get away from the body and away from 
being here with what is in order to uh, reach this uh, light or other reality we're going for. And I I can say that in my own practice, uh, the shift of recognizing all the energy and all the depletion that was coming from that kind of upward effort and learning instead, really through some difficult experiences (laughs) that I had to surrender, that I had to come home to this body, that's where it became crystal clear that most of us have not been taught uh, what the body-mind actually is, as I'll use this phrase again, an alchemical vessel for healing, an alchemical vessel that has everything we need to take into us our discomfort, our complex emotions, our love and grief, and transmute it, uh, include it into wholeness, transmute it into compassionate action, let it inform us, but let it inform our love. So I appreciate the way you describe the relationship between uh, the mother and the absolute, in a sense. It changes how we see our messy, sticky world and the invitation to make a conscious choice in each moment, which our practice gives us for how we navigate that. You with me? I am with you. Here we are together. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll share that, um, you know, one of the um, purposes of my life has been to to help people reawaken to their connection with the earth in a much bigger way than um, the delusions of individualism and anthropocentrism uh, let people see. So animism has always been an important thread in my life, simply because I never saw or experienced separation, even as a child, between the trees I engaged with Uh, the animals I engaged with, and the invisible realm as well. And I would say that in my sangha, in the community that I guide and mentor, I encourage both the depth of stillness, sitting meditation, and conscious movement and dance as a, a tantric practice. There are so many paths there, right? so that people can really recognize, oh, (laughs) even if on the cushion, I might have, when I first came to meditation or mindfulness, attempted to get away from my body, I'm being asked to go directly into my body, directly into my earth connection, and to not avoid anything there through this second invitation. So I think it's important to shake it up for people And uh, I would love to see more meditators dance and more dancers meditate so we can find that intersection of the yin and the yang to healing. Yeah. Yeah. As a recovering mathematician, I've kind of noticed the parallels between the awakening of the chakras, the yanas in Buddhism, uh, 12-step programs. They're all saying the same thing about a healing path. And... Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who knew Ramdas a long time ago. Uh, and he was giving a talk about we're going to start spiritual practice by opening our heart and then going up from there. I think it's an opinion he later changed. But a lot of people haven't really 
dove down into the dark deep, the third, second, and first chakras, really going into that, that place where we've been repressing these emotions. And that, as you're pointing out, as we, as we learn to be quiet and calm, that that stuff is going to come bubbling out. It's not going to be necessarily light and calm and happy, that, that consciousness takes its own form as is needed to bring us toward a realization of wholeness. Uh, one thing that I didn't see in your book and I'd like to explore with you is to me, uh, the, one of the most avoided things about the dark is death, right? Is that, uh, we live in a death, a death denying society. Ramda, Stephen Levine and I back in the seventies and eighties started the, the living dying project. Now it's the, I mean, we started the dying project now the living dying project. and. Uh, I started the first residential facility for conscious dying in America, and we thought that within not too long, there would be one of these facilities in every moderate to large community in America that we'd be the Colonel Sanders of death. And basically, it didn't happen. There's, there's still so much denial of death, of the ultimate darkness, if you will, although according to the Tibetans, when you die, you die into the light which is another thing that maybe we could talk about. So uh, what are your feelings about darkness and death and dying into the light and a death-denying society and how all that stuff kind of plays together? Yes. Um, first, just to acknowledge, uh, one of the challenges I faced as a writer was how many aspects of darkness I wanted to write about um, while going with some limitations my publisher offered. So yes, the book deserves an entire chapter on death and an entire chapter on sexuality, uh, if we're talking about darkness. And both of these things really point to uh, surrender and surrender as a practice. And you and I have both been meditating for a long time, so we know, and I want to just say, uh, deep bow of appreciation for your work, and it's so needed in today's world. But as meditators and those listeners who have been meditating for a long time know the impact of learning through practice to surrender, to surrender to the darkness, to surrender to the field from which we all came and to which we will all return to let go completely, even in the face of fear of identity and this sense of separate self that takes so much, again, of that active doing energy to maintain mm -hmm. and to simply learn how to rest, how to stop, how to, I'll use the word surrender again. That is an experience of death every time. And it's a, a relieving experience of death because it's recognizing, oh, ego's the only one that's kicking and screaming against death is the sense of separate self. And we really learn how to, um, one way I would put it is live in more of a dance between dark and light, creating and letting go, uh, giving birth and dying. And that doesn't mean it's not still scary to a part of us to contemplate death, but that there are practices for this. And I agree with you. I think it's one of the great poverties 
and I of today's world that at least the society I grew up in is so death phobic. And I think it has everything to do with the messages of this book, the way that if we're disconnected from nature, which teaches us that light and dark are a sacred interplay and that creation and decomposition are both equally sacred and are a cycle, a continuous cycle. In this kind of society, there are so many ways that we... Um, demonstrate this confusion, everything from preferring summer to the fallow of winter, or preferring producing and doing and the active, or preferring youth and newness to um, maturity and wisdom. And would you agree with me that it feels like just one of the great properties of our modern society today, this avoidance of death? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to me, I often work with individuals who are dying. But I think equally, if not more important, is the collective fear of death that is at the root of the greed, the selfishness, the divisiveness, the violence, and that that possibly the most important and direct thing we can do to heal so many imbalances that we see climate, uh, justice, food, all the different things, is deal with collective fear of death. And uh, I've been very interested and curious in watching how the pandemic, which is a global phenomenon, how that's affecting people's relationship with impermanence and death and compassion. And, uh, it's a little disappointing, possibly, I think, once again, fear of death. So as a recovering mathematician, I've got an equation. All fear is based in fear of death. And fear of death is exactly equal to lack of enlightenment, the place where you think that you're still only separate, right? So, yes. so that uh, one of my teachers, Trungpa Rinpoche, said that until you come into intimate contact with death, your spiritual practice will have the quality of you being a dilettante, just playing on the surface, that you really have to know in the marrow of your bones that you're going to die, that you're going to, not only you're going to die, but you don't know when. And we're assuming, <coughs> excuse me, we're assuming that we're going to survive this interview, this podcast, we're going to do the rest of our day and do all these things. We really don't know that. And to the extent we don't know that, then how much can I love Eden? How much can I be here? How much can we be with who's hearing this podcast and just die into love moment to moment to moment? Each outbreath is the last outbreath you will ever take. Each in-breath is the first breath you'll ever take. Yes, I love and resonate with everything you're saying. And it points again to this sort of um, collective disassociation, denial, and also just numbing out to life. So in a way, it's uh, in the book, I talk about the Taoist symbol of the, the yin within the yang and the yang within the yin, that when we are willing to hold the full spectrum of dark and light, of life and death, recognition of death in our awareness in every moment, there's a way in which we embody a vibrant aliveness 
there's a way in which we gain more access to the fullness and wholeness of who we are. We live at the edge of the cliff. And I hear that that's what you're pointing to. We're not really going to practice like our hair is on fire if we're not acknowledging that cliff's edge in every moment. And that doesn't mean for listeners fixating on death or ruminating or thinking about it. It means holding in our awareness the reality, the truth of life and death in every moment. In my own practice, and I say this with gratitude, um, I felt the um, fire burning within of impermanence, of death, the reminder that our time here is short, uh, cheering me on as my deepest ally throughout every step of my practice. And so to fear death and to deny it and to push it away, and let's not even get into what that then creates, what we create through that in terms of very, I think, unconscious practices around dying and burial and all of that. So I'm completely agree with what you're saying. And just an aside, I'm fascinating by the, by the notion that you are a recovering mathematician. <laughs> well, there's yeah. a story about that. But first of all, I'd like to, I've always thought that the guy that came up with this line that you should practice as if your hair were on fire was probably a monk with a shaved head. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So in terms of me being a recovering mathematician, there I was in India. I met, I've been doing meditation and stuff, but my mind was still, I'd just been 10 years studying math at Berkeley and Stanford. I don't know if you can imagine what that does to somebody's brain, but it did something to my brain. And I was with Neem Crowley Baba, this guru that Ram Dass was with, that I was with. And I came to Maharaji and I said, I'm really having a hard time meditating. Do you have any suggestions? What should I do? And I thought he'd say like, focus on your third eye and think of me or give me some sexy Hindu meditation or something. And what he said shocked me. He said, remember the mother. See all women as the mother and you'll be able to meditate. And I said, what? He said, see all women as the mother and you'll be able to meditate. And I began to notice that when I would see women or even everything as the mother, I'd be in meditation already. And when I was objectifying reality, I could temporarily still my mind with practices, but it really wasn't meditating in a certain way. That, For me, at least, it was this very direct, intimate relationship with the mother, uh, this surrender into worship of the mother in all, all the myriad forms that uh, was my path, at least, into meditation and into union. And I think that's true for a lot of people, particularly for men. and. In your, in your bio at the back of your book, and when I was trying to figure out how to introduce you, it says you, you're into post-patriarchal thought. And maybe you could say a few words about that, because that's what I've been trying to get over, at least back in those days. Sure. Um, first, I would acknowledge that when I first proposed the idea for this book, and it came to me, the call to write this book through a a mystical experience and then got grounded during a retreat I was teaching. And at first it was to write a book explicitly about darkness and the deep feminine, because I consider darkness 
the deep feminine aspect of nature and consciousness, again, the yin, restorative aspect, uh, the mother. And yet, to be transparent, what I, when I, upon reflecting more, I recognize that it felt more generous and more subversive to write a book that simply points to the deep feminine, which I talk about at times in the book, but not make it the focus, in part because within the dominant paradigm, there's so much uh, tension. It's so flammable right now, any conversations about gender that I thought it would be more helpful to readers to understand the teachings <laughs> if I made it more implicit. Um, you with me so far? So far. Yeah, yes. Let's see what happens next. Sure, sure. And I would say that first I just want to touch on having listened to something that, that you just shared. Given our time here is short, the invitation to be fully alive and fully awake to life, to be devotional, to be devoted to the mother and expressing our love for the mother in every moment of our existence. This requires us to snap out of habit, to snap out of compliance with whatever the um, other people in our society are deeming popular. It requires us to let go of wanting to fit in as our priority to let go of wanting to get things right or do spiritual practice right, it requires us to be really, really badass and courageous. That's what I'm pointing to. I don't know how we can embody practice without that. And this, again, points to fierce compassion. So for me, the more we turn towards darkness, the more we embrace impermanence as the backbone of our practice, the more we access these already existing qualities of courage, of uh, a generosity beyond what we often see in the modern world, in, in a world where, well, you, you spoke to it. Um, in the relative world, it's easy to uh, fall into separation as our perception, standing outside of life, looking in, judging, assessing, comparing, labeling all of life, which is also a way of avoiding the mystery, because if I can label it and understand it and also hold it in binary perception, that gives me a safer place to stand. But practice invites us to dive in to life, not as subject object, <laughs> but as one with life, as you're pointing to. And this takes courage, and the payoff is beyond anything that uh, we can understand or even describe before we engage in such a way. But I would agree with you that it requires recognizing in the language you shared um, all of life and everything we experience as the mother and coming from our devotion to. So I, I love that language. I deeply appreciate it. On the topic of post-patriarchal thought and practices, you know, I, um, for whatever reason, incarnated in this life as a deeply receptive uh, human. So the qualities of yin, uh, the qualities that I later recognized as deep feminine expression of nature are very much woven into my 
DNA. And I grew up in a world that diminished and held secondary many of those qualities. Strength was considered force, the active, the yang, the rational mind. And through my meditation practice, though even as a monastic, I first attempted monasticism as sort of a uh, masculine, solo, heroic, spiritual warrior that I imagine many listeners can relate to at some point, I began to come home to receptivity as the the true seat for me of uh, waking up, again, doing nothing but emptying. And I also began to recognize, oh, with great compassion, well, no wonder, you know, these incredible practices, so many of them have been passed down through male monasticism. And yeah. so there's a lot of residue from that that we need to be honest about from teacher on a pedestal with a group of devotees, perhaps modeling venerability rather than vulnerability to a notion that practice is something we can get through philosophizing or trying to understand instead of, again, getting out onto perhaps the dance floor to embody in our messiest, stickiest relational field to, again, diminishing relational forms of knowing and relationship as secondary to monasticism. There's so much I could say about this because it's been a big theme for me as practitioner and teacher. But beautifully, through my own inquiry and also through an inquiry that's being held by so many others now um, who I'm aware of, there's a growing community of people who are holding space for practice in very different ways, who are valuing relational forms of engaging and sangha and the notion of shared power rather than power over. And a lot of this really does point to the wisdom of the elemental darkness as opposed to the active and force as strength. So I've said a mouthful, but I'll be curious <laughs> what arises for you around that. Yeah, well, uh, it's really a pleasure to talk with you because, I mean, we have basically the same ideas, but a very different language or maybe very, but a pretty different language. And uh, everything you're saying is really at the heart of my teaching. Uh, my work with dying people and people who are meditating. Uh, I think I'd like to ask you just one more thing. I noticed in your book that you lead workshops and retreats and things. And could you suggest a practice, a really practical thing for people who are resonating with what you're saying that they could do without coming to a retreat, something they could integrate into their life? For me, as a recovering scientist, uh, I'm all about being practical. There's so many really super smart people who say super smart things. And I used to have like all these fantastic meditative experiences, but I had a really hard time integrating those into my relationships and my work and my daily life. It took a long time. And uh, now, I mean, really what you're talking about is fully integrating spirituality, compassion, the mother into how we live and breathe, actually. So... What can somebody take away from all these wonderful ideas and do after the podcast ends? 
Sure. Thanks for that invitation. And I want to affirm how much I've enjoyed the overlap and uh, connections between our paths with different language. Uh, it's very fun and alive. And there might be a few practices that I'll briefly touch on because the book is full of both inquiry and practices to help people uh, take this into everyday life as a laboratory for this integration. And the first is really simple, just an invitation for people to recognize the value of spaces in which we can consciously grieve, uh, the need of consciously grieving. If we're alive in this day and age, we are part of the natural feedback system of planet Earth. And there is so much to grieve as well as so much to celebrate. But if we're focused on sunshining, we might miss the opportunity to grieve even the loss of living systems that's already occurred on this planet and to recognize the connecting power of that grief, which strengthens our relationships and our communities and our love for the mother, which you yeah. and I were just talking about. And a couple of weeks ago, I led a grief workshop for the Environmental Defense Fund in Washington, D.C., and it was extraordinary for this group of professionals who's focused on climate crisis to be invited into space for conscious grieving. It's so valuable, and yet it's something, because we fear death, as you mentioned, we tend to push away. Just briefly, two more. Very simply, I encourage a practice regularly of just sitting, perhaps at the end of our meditation, visualizing that we're sitting beside a window to darkness, which can be a safe way for people who might have fear of the dark to begin to shift their relationship with it, to befriend the night. But sitting next to a window to darkness and just letting ourselves take time to really acknowledge how it feels to be present with both the the vast darkness of the night sky, darkness as the mystery, and to send loving kindness towards it, into it, the way we often do to beings, right? To visible forms of life, to acknowledge that we live in constant relationship with the mystery, with the unknown, and to befriend it, to on a daily basis express our reverence and loving kindness totally changes how we feel navigating the unknown. So that's number two. And then lastly, just very briefly, remember that our ancestors spent a lot more time under the night sky and in physical darkness than we do. And I think something gets lost by being around so many artificial lights. Under the night sky, we remember our humility. We remember all possibility. We remember how much we do not know. And one can engage in a practice of both spending time in physical darkness, and there are darkness retreats as well, but also just pausing throughout the day to close our eyes and to and darken and to remember that even in the space you're sitting in right now, it was dark some hours ago and it will be dark some hours to come. And if that's not going to remind us of the constant flux of change of light and dark and life and death, I don't know what does. It really uh, helps me to move through this life in a more honest and fully alive way and in constant reverence to the darkness or constant devotion to the mother. Yeah. 
Thank you so much. Thank you for being with me on the podcast and thank you for all the work you've been doing. Uh, it's so important. You're so welcome and ditto. I'm so appreciative of you and, and your work and just your way. Thank you. Wrong. Um.